Can you be both a soldier and a father at the same time? Certainly, there are military families today who would say yes, but it's never easy. I mean, duty calls you away from the family to perform a job that might mean that you will not see them again for months, if ever. And some U.S. military fathers stationed in Afghanistan today have even started using what's called flat daddies, which are life-size cardboard photos of themselves used as stand-ins in the lives of their young children. It might be stood up in the backyard as the kids play, or propped up next to the swing as if ready to push, or folded into a chair at the dinner table. Now, as heartwarming as that may sound, it's also sad that there should ever be a call for such a thing. I mean, in an ideal world, fathers should be with their children. But we don't live in an ideal world. And how much less ideal was the world of Nazi Germany, where soldiers were expected to be fathers, but the prospect of death on the front was all too imminent. Imagine if they had flat daddies back then. I mean, something around four million German soldiers went to their deaths in World War II. So you can imagine Germany littered over with these smiling cardboard cutouts of all those young men who had left their families behind forever. You never think about who they leave behind. I mean, the next time you watch a World War II movie, just think every one of those goose-stepping soldiers gunned down like minions had a family. In fact, their family may have been what they were fighting for. Many Germans, especially those in the Wehrmacht army, were never thoroughly Nazified, never completely indoctrinated, not as much as the SS or the Hitler Youth anyway. They may not have believed all that much in terms of the racism or the Fuhrer, but they knew that if they did not go to fight at the front, they would bring heat down on their family. And so they went to fight and die for their families, for their children, whom they may not ever see again. That is the soldier-father contradiction that I want to talk about today. It was a highly gendered expectation that you be both a soldier and a father, and yet give the one up for the other. It's a hard choice that no one should ever have to make. And yet nearly every German male of that generation had to face it in one way or another. That's what we're talking about in today's Short Shorts episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our Patreon patron, Bart Everson, for making this episode possible. All right, time for today's Short Shorts. Short 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 Soldier and father, those are the two essential roles of the Nazi male. Now, not everybody was a soldier, soldier going to the front, but as we heard last time, the soldier was the ideal of masculinity, and for people who weren't at the front, who had other jobs, they were still part of a militaristic regime, 
and still had pressure coming down from the top that could endanger their families if they stepped out of line. So in broad strokes, soldier and father, that's what you were supposed to be as a male in Nazi Germany. Now, given what we've already heard in this series, it should not be too hard to imagine how the regime would push both of those things quite hard. Germany needed soldiers to fight the next war, and they needed fathers to breed the new master race. And just as women were urged to give a child to the Fuhrer, so too were men. After all, it takes two to tango. Therefore, every man deemed racially fit, that is Aryan, had to be both soldier and father. However, those two roles did not exactly go together like wieners and sauerkraut. In the propaganda literature, it's made to appear as no problem, cut and dried. All soldiers should father at least one child before going off to war, and then they could do their duty for their fatherland. Done deal. Simple, right? However, pulling off such a feat could not have been easy. While volunteers might have timed their enlistment accordingly, the millions who were conscripted had no such luxury. They didn't have time to plan a family when their number was called and they had to go and fight. And exemptions were not issued for childless men, nor were there any special mechanisms for those who actually did manage to father a child to visit their children after recruitment, apart from the standard furlough. Now this could not have made it easy to fulfill the expectation to be both a soldier and a father. Now those in the Schutzstaffel, or SS, did have a little bit better time juggling these mixed duties. First of all, all SS men were volunteers. There were no conscripts in the SS. It was a volunteer organization. So they did not face the timing problem of conscription. Second, not all SS went to the front lines. Generally, it was only the militarized wing of the SS, the Waffen-SS, that fought. Others filled a variety of regime roles stationed at the home front, so they had a little more opportunity to come home from the office and be with their families. I don't know how you do that after planning genocide all day and then you come home and be with your families, but that is a whole other issue. Moreover, those who did go to the front were provided opportunities for fatherhood. As historian Amy Beth Carney notes, unlike the military in general, the SS did allow any SS soldier who remained childless to take a full year off from the war in order to procreate. At the same time, married SS officers received special leave above and beyond the standard furlough for that same purpose, and the officer's unit typically arranged the rendezvous and might even coordinate its timing with the spouse's fertility cycle. Imagine that. <laughs> You're an officer in the army and your radar, your underling, is like checking out your wife's fertility cycle in order to plan when you're going to go on leave. Now, if an officer happily succeeded in germinating his seed, but wasn't equipped with a cradle, no problem. His unit was actually expected to keep a communal cradle called a storm cradle, decorated with runes and swastikas for that very use. Any SS officer in need could use it. Finally, salary increases for each child born also help to defray the costs of fatherhood for SS men. These incentives helped SS officers balance their dual roles a bit better than the typical soldier in the German army. But they also faced increased pressure. 
the head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, issued something called the Procreation Order, not creepy sounding at all, in November of 1939, which barred from promotion any officer who failed to marry or produce offspring. And they were instructed to have at least four children, preferably sons. Furthermore, they were urged to trade in their current wives for more genetically fit, quote-unquote, Aryan lasses, and they were nudged to keep mistresses on the side as well, to sow their seed as widely as possible. And in these ways, SS officers were subjected to an exaggerated form of the masculinity experienced elsewhere in Germany, with both greater support and greater pressure on them. Nowhere in the literature, though, whether for the SS or any other wing of the military, is there an acknowledgement of the inherent emotional contradiction in being both a soldier and a father. After all, these dual roles meant that you were basically a split being, forever torn between two worlds, the front and the home. Now, how can you be both a tough-as-nails soldier and a tender-hearted father at one and the same time? How can you be there for your children when you have to be away for your fatherland? Or, if you're an SS officer stationed on the home front, how can you advance genocidal policies all day and come home to bounce your little girl on your knee? These were the stress points of the Nazi male. Where to place your priority, how to behave in each world, how to transition between these worlds, and how to feel in each role was an unacknowledged struggle. Of course, this need not surprise us. After all, traditional masculinity says you shouldn't talk about your feelings. That's one of the aspects that's criticized as toxic. So, if you didn't think Nazi masculinity was toxic already, here you go. All these mixed feelings that cannot be discussed can't have been good for their mental health. And we can glimpse further toxicity in published attempts to paper over the emotional contradiction involved here. Now, we did touch on this a little bit last time, but I want to go into it a bit deeper today. We'll begin with an article from Das Schwarze Korps, or the Black Corps, which was an SS newspaper. This is from the issue dated August 10th, 1939, which is less than one month before the Nazi invasion of Poland, which kicked off World War II. And the title of this article is Ist das unmannlich? Or Is this unmanly? And historian Amy Beth Carney describes the article as containing five photographs, each with a caption. She writes, The first image depicted a father pushing the baby carriage while taking a stroll with his wife and son. The caption exclaimed, This father fears nothing unmanly to his appearance. He decreases the troubles of his wife. The second photograph showed a family outing. The uniformed father carried his daughter, an action which the words underneath the illustration strongly supported. The smallest of the family has become tired from a walk in the forest. Now should the mother know our SS comrade shows that he has no fear. And then, of course, the SS man carries the child in the photo. The third snapshot revealed an SS man in uniform aiding a mother with her baby carriage, and beneath it the footer noted, Uniform and baby carriage both rescue the soldier. The last two pictures 
portrayed a man feeding a bottle to and changing the diaper of a baby. Once again, the caption affirmed the encouragement of the newspaper for these deeds. Why shouldn't the father also provide for his child? He thereby loses nothing of his masculinity, but he shows himself in such a case that his love for his wife and his child is not only lip service. Now here we glimpse, contrary to the intentions of the author of this article, the struggle of the Nazi male. I mean, while the author confidently asserts that no masculinity is lost in these activities, the very fact that it must be stated suggests the worry that it would be lost. I mean, the author doth protest too much to use the Shakespearean phrase. Clearly, Nazi men experienced a level of cognitive dissonance in attempting to reconcile their dual roles as soldiers and fathers. And in fact, that was the case. Historian Thomas Kuna reports that pushing a baby carriage was a symbolically loaded gesture that at the time was considered to be an ostensive violation of the common, not specifically Nazi, code of manliness. Men pushing baby carriages were mocked or frowned upon, and the Nazi stormtroopers, or Sturmabteilung, or SA, formally banned such activity. So that is how sensitive German men were at the time to being perceived as feminine by tending to children. Gender roles were so rigidly defined that the stormtroopers actually banned pushing baby carriages. Wow, I mean, imagine the consequences to the health of the child if the father literally cannot take it outside without breaking a ban. And what if he was a single father? Would he be forced to sustain the mockery of his compatriots? Or would he have to hand over parenting to a sister or a female friend, thus depriving himself not only of strolls with his child, but of virtually all bonding time with his child? Nazi daddies were more than just sensitive about their toughness, though. They were also concerned about tenderness. A week later, the same newspaper, Das Schwarze Korps, ran another article entitled Best Friends, imploring men to spend time with their children. And tender father-son moments, or more rarely father-daughter moments, are, according to the authors of this article, vital to true fatherhood. Historian Amy Beth Carney sums up the article, which again features copious photographs. Each picture showed a father interacting with his son or sons, giving swimming lessons, constructing a fort, climbing a tree, and building a campfire. In both cases, the depictions furnished a persuasive argument with respect to the vital participation of a father in the daily life and upbringing of his children. They imparted the vision of an active father who cared for his family, Fatherhood encompassed far more than biological responsibility. In other words, it was important to be there for your children, at least according to the SS. A fatherly presence was considered wholesome and necessary, and that might have been at least somewhat feasible in peacetime, but it would become unworkable soon enough when the war began. In September of 1939, just a month after the publication of these two articles, Hitler invaded Poland. And the Allies came to Poland's defense and World War II began. Now, how were men supposed to be there for their children while simultaneously 
being away fighting for the fatherland. One of the most poignant expressions of this catch-22 comes from war reporter Walter Soroka in an edition of Das Schwarze Korps from August 5, 1943, four years into the war now, Soroka writes to his unborn child, Whether I will see you, whether you will ride on my knees, whether I admire your first step, and whether I can ever be a playmate and comrade for you, I do not know this, because death marches at the side of the soldier. Now, this article was a posthumous publication. Soroka did, in fact, die on the front lines and never saw his unborn child. Nazi men were expected to be both soldiers and fathers. And with that came the ever-present risk of never seeing your family again. How difficult must it have been for those men now, we might be forgiven for having little sympathy for hate mongers like SS men, but as noted at the beginning, there were those who were less Nazified. Those in the Wehrmacht, while by no means innocent, were at least less brainwashed into genocide and may well have been fighting more for the safety of their families than for the Reich. And for men like that, who were exhorted at every turn to become fathers before going off to the war, what must it have been like to say goodbye, possibly forever? I mean, it would have been one thing if you went off to war childless, and then your feelings could at least be focused on the war. But to do that with the thought of a baby back home, you know, it's, it's biological. When a child is born, parents' bodies are flooded with hormones that make you fall in love with it. And you cannot just ignore that or stuff it away like a sock in a closet, out of sight, out of mind. No, 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 no. You will go to the front with the thought of that child always on your mind. What a torture that must be. But you can't say so. You can't talk about it, though, you see, in Nazi masculinity. You can display pride in being a father, sure. And you could show your buddies the photographs and, you know, maybe even get a little misty-eyed over them. But you cannot confess the tortured feelings of the soldier-father contradiction. At best, you could exchange a knowing glance with your compatriot, who was also a father, you know, a sad and wordless gaze, but for a moment, because you know that he too has someone small back home that he may never see again. Well, that's all I've got on that topic today, folks. I realize how uncomfortable it may be for some listeners to feel a measure of sympathy for monsters as horrible as the Nazis, but to me, that's what makes it poignant to imagine someone so completely different from ourselves, and yet also to find something that's somehow the same. And we're not done with the poignant yet in this series. I mean, thus far, we have touched on the Jewish experience only in the most fleeting way, but next time, we're going to give it the attention that it deserves. What was it like for Jewish men? I mean, the masculine role is, first and foremost, that of protector. So what happens to your masculinity when an all-pervasive regime comes for your family and you cannot save them from it? What was Jewish masculinity like before and then during the war? 
That's what we'll be talking about next time. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, you can support the show by subscribing, rating, and reviewing, or you can pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a brave soldier gloriously charging forward, but with a tear rolling down your cheek for the ones that you leave behind, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That is patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, that's it for today, folks. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.